0: Loneliness hurts. It impacts our immune systems, our blood pressure and our anxiety and depression. The pandemic gave us a harsh reminder of that. Lockdowns may be over, but loneliness is not. It's a health issue that must be addressed urgently, say the former director and deputy director of the Helen Clark Foundation, Kathy Errington and Dr Holly Walker. They've edited a new book of essays that explore the data and experiences of loneliness in New Zealand and what we can do about it. The book is called Reconnecting Aotearoa, Loneliness and Connection in the Age of Social Distance. And Kathy Errington and Dr Holly Walker join me now. Hi guys. Kia Hello. Cathy, I want to start with a quote that you actually finish the book with. It's from the 17th century. It says... Solitude is fine, but you need someone to tell that solitude is fine. Social isolation isn't a modern problem, but I wonder if the pandemic forced us to take a hard look at how pervasive and impactful loneliness is for humans.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think the we need to process what we've all been through uh, was was one of the reasons that Holly and I decided to, to do the essay collection um, and we were particularly interested in exploring the the public policy challenges that loneliness presented. And I think, yeah, for me, one of the, I guess, intellectual inspirations for the book was there's an American writer called Robert Putnam who did a, a book called uh, Bowling Alone that explored the implications. It's quite an evocative image. He was talking about how the declining numbers of Americans in bowling leagues uh, in the 50s, I think it was one in six Americans, something like that, was in a bowling league. But and, and by the 1980s, even though more people were participating in bowling, there were far fewer in leagues. And it was causing mm. the um, the you know bowling alleys to go out of business because they were mostly making their money selling the drinks and the food. Uh, and so the fact that people were bowling alone had big social implications. Huh. Um, and... Yeah, so Holly and I were saying, well, how can we look at this in New Zealand? Uh, How can we look at the big, that interaction between the big political context that surrounds us and our small private personal lives and kind of seek to explain how and why loneliness can be the result of the interface between those two things.
0: Holly, you did your first report on social isolation for the Helen Clark Foundation. It was called Alone Together. And you've updated it, I guess, with the, um, the the distance of time. What sticks out to you about the most important, um, I guess, facts about who experiences loneliness most in our country? Mm.
2: Yeah, it, it's interesting. I think, you know, as Kathy said, we've, we've just been through this pandemic experience which involved enforced social isolation. And so at the time that that first report, um, Alone Together, was written, we were we had just come out of the first level four lockdown so it was very focused everybody was thinking about social isolation and loneliness and I guess imagining who might be most impacted um and trying to support each other and it was it was both a very challenging and a very um quite wonderful time in some ways because of that support that that people showed for each other um but it's interesting because I think we we were quite focused at that time on um the people we we might um, intuitively perceived to be extra vulnerable to being lonely, which might include include older people or people who live on their own, um, or you know, uh, uh, who who can and were some were very it must be acknowledged very badly affected by loneliness during that time, but statistically speaking. Um, there's a much larger range of people who might be impacted and if we think about it by age it's actually young people and um, ages 18 to 24 who are the most likely to report feeling mon- lonely uh, a significant amount of the time and that was true both before during and after the pandemic period and the lockdowns so you know going back to that quote that you um, mentioned at the beginning that Kathy closes the collection with this is not a new problem you know the pandemic has focused our minds on loneliness in a new and more um, acute way, I suppose. But it's always been the case that uh, we need other humans and we need human connection. It's not the same thing as being alone. Sometimes we can be alone, but have the social connections in our life that we need and so feel perfectly content. And other times we can be surrounded by other people. But if we don't have the type of connection and the depth of connection that we need with others we can still feel very lonely and i think that's probably the case with a lot of young people um as well as others who who are more likely to experience that
0: is our experience of loneliness in aotearoa new zealand different from other countries
2: i think there are probably some aspects of our life and our culture here that either amplify it or reduce it um but but the trend certainly in terms of age that trend that i've just mentioned is mirrored largely throughout the world um it's interesting to look at it through a cultural lens, uh, one of, so just to, to backtrack, I guess, a little bit that some of the research that informed this essay collection that we published at the Foundation, uh, used survey data from Statistics New Zealand to look at self-reported loneliness amongst different pop- groups of the population. And it was really interesting to see that, for example, um, New new migrants were very likely to report feeling very lonely. And mm-hmm. that was particularly so during the pandemic. And you can imagine why, given many um people were at that time separated from their family. If they had migrated mm-hmm. here, those, those issues are well known, of course, and then were unable to connect with their family for a long period of time. Um, different ethnic groups also more likely than others to report feeling lonely. Interestingly, Pacific people among the least likely to report feeling lonely. I think more research is required to to tease out the nuances of that but one might perhaps posit um you know very strong collective uh extended family networks and church networks could have something to do with that so i think there are aspects of our particular cultural makeup in in aotearoa new zealand that may impact the flavor of our loneliness experience but i think as a general rule the trend is something that's being experienced internationally
0: uh and i could could
1: just add on on that cultural issue um that Holly was discussing there, there's a really uh, interesting essay in the collection by Dr. Luke Fitzmaurice Brown that ad- addresses the impact of disconnection from whakapapa Papa, and then his own journey of reconnection with his Ewe up north and his experiences during the the COVID checkpoints that were in place. Um, so, so yeah, there is a there's an essay in the collection that particularly comes to mind on on that topic.
2: Mm. And and that might be, in fact, you know, talking thinking about what makes our experience unique here. Some of the characteristics of our population, might experience, how how and who is feeling lonely, um, also, you know, aspects of Te Ao Māori and Te Kānga may very much impact what the solutions look like here in Aotearoa New Zealand. So Luke's essay that Kathy's just mentioned, talking about. I guess um, an expression of Tēnōranga, Tērātanga and Whakapapa as connection is a really important example as is Carrie Stoddart-Smith's essay in the book which sort of traces her experience of saying goodbye to her father who was um, sick with terminal cancer during the pandemic and um, the concept of tanga and what that might mean in a socially distanced period of time to be able to stay connected through whānau and social links and, and cultural links at a, at a time when we can't be physically proximal. So I think there's some really interesting ideas for solutions in the collection as well.
0: I'm talking about the book, Reconnecting Aotearoa, Loneliness and Connection in the Age of Social Distance by Kathy Errington and Dr Holly Walker, who are my guests. Cathy, were we ever a team of 5 million, do you think?
1: Uh, Yes, I think so. But we were in very different boats, as it turned out. I I think we were, I think the country pulled together during the lockdown. um, But our experiences of that lockdown were incredibly different. And that's what, for me, part of organising this essay collection, that was part of what we wanted to explore. Um, for, For our own part, Holly and I, you know, we experienced the lockdown, we were virtually never alone at all, because we had young children. Yeah, know that and... feeling? <laughs> so uh-huh. we were we were physically probably never alone uh, for a moment of that experience but at the same time that can be very lonely. Um, so what, what do you think, Holly? Yeah, I think that's right. I think,
2: you know, when it came time to, we, we, we published the initial research that informed this collection as I was saying before, sort of during, while we were still living this period and so it's been really useful with a couple of years of hindsight to sort of take a step back and take a broader view of it and um, I think that for me one of the things coming out of taking that step back is what Kathy's just said about really getting some clarity on what a different experience it was for everyone so whilst during that initial period yes I think there was real mm. collective goodwill um to to take care of each other you know people were taking food to their neighbors they were checking in on each other they were staying home because they didn't want to spread you know an unknown and potentially deadly virus to each other so there definitely was that kind of hewaka Ikenoa team of five million thing going on but nobody's experience of that period was the same you know it was as kathy was saying really really different if you were a parent of young children than if you were a person an older person living alone than if you were a disabled person you know i i know and there's an essay in the collection by um kiki van newtown who talks about um disability and medical fragility who actually found that initial period incredibly empowering and connecting because hers was a family that that had begun isolating much earlier than everybody else because they were very concerned about risk before you know we all got there and when we all joined them there it was a, it was equalizing we could um they could then connect in the same ways that everybody else was and so nobody had the same experience during that time and i think you know it's hard to draw um firm conclusions about i guess the level of social Um, cohesion and connection as it panned out during the rest of the pandemic we know there were some real challenges obviously there and I think probably the fact that you know we had not actually all gone through the same thing even though on paper it might have seemed like we had probably had something to do with that.
0: Can public policy tackle loneliness?
1: yes I think it can I I think it can do so if it asks what are the how do you create the conditions for social connection to thrive and instead of taking a kind of negative angle and mm. saying how do we fix loneliness because I think that would encourage quite ham-fisted interventions into people's lives but it, I think instead if you ask well how do we create the conditions for social connections. So that that has that has huge implications. You, that, that raises questions about how we design and move through our cities. Um, it questions about income and employment settings, um, things around digital safety, digital equity. Th- those are all things that emerge from, from the authors and the collection. Um, but yes, I think there is a role for public policy. And I think there's a role for public policy to value social connectedness and what it offers. Because the big, circling back to what I was saying at the start Mm. about um, the bowling alone um, uh, work by Robert Putnam, what he ultimately found was that the more time people spent alone, um, you you could really track the deterioration and how likely they were to vote and participate politically, uh, along with the deterioration and lots of kind of collective, organised activities that people were doing at the community level. And so that that was the connection that I found really interesting, that if if we're not doing things with each other, it becomes harder to feel that sense of shared responsibility and a shared Mm. destiny, I think. Um, and, And that's why I was interested to, I guess, articulate the case for valuing social connectedness as a public policy issue.
2: Mm, I think that's right. And I I think um, there's an essay in the collection by Max Rashbrook, who um, gives a lot of evidence for the very strong connection between low income or poverty, um, and loneliness and and social disconnection. And there are lots of reasons for that, that are both very practical, like it's really hard to connect with other people if you can't afford to buy them a coffee or get get transport to the place you're going to see them. But also, because of the kind of cumulative, I guess, toxic um, experience that living on a very low income can be for your well-being overall. Um, And Max's conclusion, he cites some UK research where they did some survey data looking at public attitudes towards poverty and what is it to be poor and what is it to be lonely and what are the solutions to these things um, and found that the more we talked about it, the more it was discussed in public that things like being able to attend a birthday party or being able to invite people to your home and cook for them are they those should be included in the list of things that make us quote unquote poor or not, because those are really critical parts of the human experience. And the more that's discussed in the public arena, the more support there is for that kind of thinking about what it means to, I guess, be able to participate fully in society. So to circle back to your question for Cathy, um, Jesse, I think it really does behove us to think about this as a public policy issue, because it, th- those things are public policy solutions, right? Do we have our income settings right? Do we have our employment settings right? Are we, um, have we, are we, ensuring equity in our society when we do that that creates the conditions for social connection and that creates people who are kind of well and happy and thriving and able to contribute fully in their their communities
0: there's plenty of evidence for personal actions the impact they can have in the book as well um max's um uh essay about poverty is a great one there's susan strongman writing about her mother her mother who used to go to mcdonald's for a two dollar flat whites just for um the human company And she writes about the small acts of kindness that had such an impact on her mother.
2: Yes, and that's really interesting. Going right back to the research we originally did um, in 2020, there are a few different types of connection between people that are really important. And one of those types is, I guess, what we would call incidental connection connection. You know it's the it's the person who serves you your coffee at mcdonald's or it's the person that you sit next to on the train and or exchange greetings with at the bus station those those aren't enough in and of themselves to make a strongly socially connected life but they actually do they do play a very important role in our in the daily sort of Mm. accumulation of social contact that we have that makes us feel like we are part of a collective and part of a community Mm. so those really critical and 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 to take it into the digital space it's interesting as well you know we were all very reliant on our digital devices during lockdown periods to stay connected with other people but many households actually don't have broadband or they might have um, internet enabled devices but not a broadband connection at home so places like public libraries and mcdonald's again actually where wi-fi is available freely become really important places for people to access digital Mm. connection and of course or closed during the pandemic so yeah little things like that actually make a really big difference and yes that essay of Susan's is absolutely beautiful so I do recommend people check that
0: out y- yeah you mentioned connecting online um it's not the same uh, your essayist Gayatri Naya Holly uh, makes the point that when we connect with people online we're almost always doing something else at the same time um uh, it's, it's so in, in some and ways, it's a zero-sum game. If you're spending a lot of time online, right? it's time that you would otherwise have spent in person with somebody.
1: Yeah. I think she it's- also makes some really interesting points in her essay about how time you spend online is genuinely different to talking, someone, mm-hmm. talking to someone face-to-face. Like a Zoom call is often much more closely cropped on your face. So you need to be looking uh, interested. You need to be kind of performing that you're engaged in a way that you don't have to in a face-to-face conversation. And, the, and that actually makes it a lot more exhausting.
2: Yes, it can be really draining. And, you know, so Guy is a, a therapist, a, a counsellor, and so she's talking there about the experience of delivering counselling digitally during the lockdown. And I thought it was really interesting that she found, um, despite, you know, you might think, well, that makes it much more accessible for people to, um, to be able to do that from home, you know, they could they can do it where they are it might make it easier but many of her clients actually chose to wait until they could see her again in person because Mm. they recognized that there was something in that face-to-face connection Mm. that was a valuable part of that experience and you know I I think that is um and I'm I'm not speaking here from a place of evidence necessarily but I think that's possibly one of the longer-term impacts and something we need to be careful of is um as we have all got quite used to doing most things remotely working remotely connecting remotely Um, It can be quite easy to fall into just defaulting to that. Um, And for many people, that's really important, like going back to the disability perspective. I think sometimes that's great because it's much more accessible um, and creates a much more equal platform for engagement. On the flip side, there's a cost to not seeing people in person. And so getting that balance right between staying physically proximal and connected with other people, but making use of the technology we have to to keep in touch digitally at other times is a really um, important balance to get right.
0: You've each spent so long looking at this issue. Can I ask you, has it changed the way you interact with people, how how you think about people you meet and how they might be feeling?
2: Yeah, I can go first if you like. Yes, I think it it has. I think in a couple of different ways. Um, That last one in particular... Uh, I now much prefer to see people in person. There was a period of time where I felt like I should be able to do everything online, but I've circled around much more to the in-person connection again um, and really value being able to do things like go into an office, for example. Um, but, But the other way is probably to do with those incidental social connections that I was talking about before. I think being aware of how significant those can be for people Um, as well as for myself actually, makes me much more likely to do things like um, smile at strangers on the street, uh, take my earbuds out and have a conversation with someone if they look like they might want to chat. Um, And and in a non-creepy way, if I ever see someone who just looks absolutely fantastic, I'll tell them I really love their outfit because Mm. those things I think can really, um, if that's someone who hasn't really had much connection that day, those things can really make a difference.
1: And yeah, I guess uh, just to add to that from my perspective, I, I think, Having having spent so much time thinking on the issue of loneliness, I try, and I'm sure I fall short of this all the time, but, but both at work and, and in my personal life, I think it's just made me want to uh, be gentle with people, I suppose, and, and mm. try and cherish them. I'm sure I don't manage to do that all the time. There's probably a lot of people hearing me say that and laughing to themselves, but I it, it does... It it has made me, it it drew my attention to life can be really hard for all of us and I think that remembering that and just being a bit more gentle with each other is really important.
0: Guys, congratulations on this book. There's so much in it. We've barely scratched the surface, but I have to get used to that on this show. So um, I'll point people to the book. It's called Reconnecting Aotearoa, Loneliness and Connection in the Age of Social Distance. And I've been talking to Kathy Errington and Dr. Holly Walker. Thanks so much, guys.
1: Thanks for having us. Thank you so much.